This is The Guardian. Today, a referendum and one woman's fight to change Australia. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we start, this episode contains references to racist language and violence. For Indigenous Australian listeners, a heads up, it also includes the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have now passed away. I was working about 1980 in a town called Derby in the Kimberley, which had retained these racial segregation practices. Professor Marcia Langton is an Aboriginal activist and academic. In the 1980s, she was working as an anthropologist in Western Australia. And I'd been working with some old men recording their ceremonies and their songs. They were such beautiful people. And there were two hotels in town, both of them segregated. One in a very weird way. It had a white bar, a black bar and a coloured bar. But the other place was strictly whites only. And I found this out because I asked one of my dear compatriots, have you ever been in there? And he said, no, I've never been in there. I said, why not? He said, oh, they don't let us in there. And it was a hotel that had the fanciest restaurant in town. I went back recently. I don't know how I could have thought it was fancy. It was (laughs) hilarious. This was the 1980s and parts of Australia were still segregated. And in this town, Marcia decided she wanted to do something about it. So I made a booking and I took my friends in for lunch and all staff served us, but they stood back and watched us eat. Like, you know, (laughs) it was some form of entertainment. We knew what we were doing and they knew what we were doing, but they didn't call the police and they didn't throw us out. So that was pretty interesting to me. Marcia Langton has spent pretty much her entire life this way, trying to change Australia. Whether it's desegregating the fanciest restaurant in Derby or contributing to a landmark inquiry into why so many Indigenous Australians die in prison, her life story is intertwined with one of the world's great civil rights struggles. Today, we're going to trace that life and what it tells us about the long fight for equality and justice for Indigenous Australians. A fight that Marcia and other leaders say is not making enough progress because it's built on a broken foundation. And they have a plan on how to rebuild the very idea of Australia. And it starts with a referendum tomorrow, where more than 17 million Australians will decide whether they want to start walking a path to reconciliation by establishing something called The Voice. What do we want? Yes! Yes. When do we want it? Now! 
Good evening. Tens of thousands of Australians have attended rallies around the country. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has cast his vote in the historic Voice to Parliament referendum. Australians in New South Wales are casting their votes early in a landmark referendum which could see the forming of an Indigenous body to advise its Parliament. Tomorrow's vote is an outstretched hand from Indigenous Australians to the rest of the country, saying, join us, let's start making this right. But will Australians take it? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the life of Marcia Langton and a vote to change Australia. On the sun-drenched shores of southern Queensland, man has made what is today Australia's finest playground. I was born in 1951 in a hospital in Brisbane, and I remember feeling like we were always on the run. We lived in highly impoverished circumstances, extremely impoverished circumstances, travelling across southern Queensland to a variety of rural towns, attending rural schools. The Australian myth is that Australia was settled peacefully, but the truth is far from that. Queensland was colony hard won. It was where the frontier wars were fought the hardest for decades. Recently, one historian estimated the death toll of Aboriginal people in my grandfather's area at about 40,000 people. I think it was much more than that, in fact. One feels there that the frontier is always very close. I went back to Bolan when I was about 16 or 17. I was travelling westwards to see my grandmother in Charleville and I stopped at the Bolan store and an old white man came up to me and said, you're looking for your people, aren't you? I said, yes, and he said, well, most of them are buried 50 miles north of here in trees. We put them there after we murdered them. Marcia Langton is a descendant of the Yiman and Bidjara nations of central Queensland. And in the 1950s, when Marcia was still a child, the lives of Indigenous people in Queensland were still ruled by a colonial-era law that governed almost every aspect of their lives. Indigenous people were not free, even if Marcia had been an adult. Because of who she was, she'd always be a ward of the state of Queensland, which meant the money she earned wasn't really hers. She couldn't buy property, and she could be ordered to live wherever the government chose. I lived for a time in a native camp in Bolan with my great-aunt. It was an official native camp where Aboriginal people were allowed to live if they were working on the sheep stations. Many of my relations were in the administered reserves. They were run a bit like concentration camps. People were not allowed to leave without a signed permission letter from the superintendent. People were not allowed to marry without permission. There was very explicit racism. We were not allowed to be served in the town store until all white people were served. 
we had to be served last. It was the practice for Aboriginal people to walk on one side of the street in town and white people on the other side of the street. Marcia's grandfather, like many Indigenous Australians on cattle ranches and cane fields, was an indentured labourer. It wasn't all that different from actual slavery. He was separated from his family and, as part of a work gang, sent across the state to build stone bridges. I have many of the records of my grandfather's writing to the Department of Native Affairs, often writing to try to see his children who were placed in reserves, my aunts and uncles, to pay them visits to see them at Christmas time, to write to them for their birthdays and so on. He had beautiful dark brown skin. He was a very small man. He was very elegant and very gentle. My grandmother had worked on sheep stations as a cook in the homesteads for white people. It was these elders in Marcia's life, her great aunt, her grandparents, who taught her how to live in country. The ways of being and knowing passed down the generations for tens of thousands of years, including practical advice. In the cold winters out on the plains, the snakes come into your camp. So we had to learn to sweep to a very smooth surface all of the areas around our camp every evening and then get up in the morning and look for snake tracks. I learned about spirits in the night and also a bit about bush medicine and poisonous bushes and so on. At school, she received another kind of education. As a child, I was possibly in grade three or four in a place called Dhirunbandi and I came top of the class and I was chased home by all the other kids who threw stones at me. So even the children are violent. If we were ever taught anything about Aboriginal people, we were taught the pyramid of human evolution with white people at the top of the pyramid and Aborigines and apes at the bottom of the pyramid and that Aboriginal people had been a nuisance towards the brave white pioneers and were thieves devious, sly, all kinds of insulting words. And I can remember in class thinking, I know we're Aboriginal people, but who are these Aboriginal people that these teachers are talking about? I don't know any Aboriginal people like that. And it was some time before I realised that we were being taught essentially a racist curriculum designed to inculcate a hatred of Aboriginal people. At one point, actually, in high school, I was expelled from school for objecting to a racist poem that the English teacher read out to the class. What was the poem about? Dirty Aborigines using soap down at the waterhole to bathe. An English class. The teacher's name was Mrs McKenna. And I stood up and I said, Mrs McKenna, this poem is racist. And she said... You get out of my class and report to the principal's office right now. (laughs) So I did, and I was expelled. Did you have a respite from this incredibly racist and violent place that you were growing up in? For some reason, I was permitted to use libraries. 
So I borrowed books and I'd take books to my hiding places and read books, mostly adventure books. So I was a very quiet child and I read a lot. Where were your hiding places? Uh, Trees. There's a particular tree that grows in Queensland, and I've never seen it anywhere else, called the Burdekin plum tree. And it has big wide branches at the top and a great foliage cover, and it's a wonderful place to sit. It wasn't until late high school that I began to understand even the concept of racism. By the 1960s, the world was changing. Other people living in similar suffocating situations were demonstrating new ways to resist and the cost of doing so. Good morning, I'm Hugh Downs, and this is today, Friday, April 5th. I remember the day when I was told that Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. Dr. Martin Luther King, civil rights leader, Nobel Prize winner, and apostle of nonviolence, died violently last night in Memphis, Tennessee. It came as a great shock to me because he demonstrated such courage and clarity. Until then, I think, all of these conditions I took rather for granted, as if that was the way of the world. And it took me a very long time to understand that it ought not to be the way of the world. One of the people inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. was an Aboriginal student named Charlie Perkins. A lot of Australians talk about, oh yes, we want to give the Aboriginal a fair go, then it's full stop and it's usually forgotten. They never go on. For 15 days, with the national media in tow, Perkins and a group of students led a freedom ride across New South Wales through towns where Indigenous people couldn't go to the pub or the cinema, or where Indigenous kids were banned from the local pool. And it became a national sensation. What, all the Aborigines? Every one of them. And the university as well. They're the ones that caused the trouble in this town. Perkins, in turn, inspired a young Marcia Langton. In 1967, while she was still in high school, she started connecting with Indigenous activists. This was a big year. Like today, Australians were being asked to agree a change to the Constitution. Next Saturday may fittingly be called the Day of the Aborigine, for it is the first occasion on which we, the Australian people, have for many years been called upon to think so seriously about our Aboriginal minority. They were being asked whether to recognise Indigenous people as equal citizens of Australia, counted in the census and subject to the same laws. It had only been two years since all Indigenous people across the country had even been allowed to vote. One of my great-aunts, not directly related, was at one of the 67 gatherings outside of Town Hall in Brisbane, and she said, Marcia, you have to help us, you can read and write. And it was something I'll never forget because many of those old people who ran that campaign for 10 years were not fully literate in English. So they wanted me along to help them write the pamphlets. You know, I must have been about 14, I think. And I thought it was tremendously exciting. I was being given a very serious responsibility. And I remember going to a political meeting at Ujuru Noonuckle's house. She was known as Kath Walker back then. She was one of the key campaigners. The white man claimed your hunting grounds and you could not remain. They made your workers menial for greedy private gain. Your tribes are broken vagrants now, wherever whites abide. 
and justice of the white man means justice to you denied. And the meeting was under her house. You know, you have these very tall houses in Queensland on stilts. It was my very first political meeting. They were extraordinarily courageous because racism was rife. And yet they somehow convinced over 90% of Australians to vote yes for equal rights. That was the slogan of the campaign, equal rights for Aborigines, vote yes. Of course, that was not the truth of it, but I don't think they knew that. Australia was still so far from equal. Closing that gap would consume the next decades of Marcia's life. It'd culminate in a plan for a reimagined Australia, being put to the country tomorrow. But long before all that, she was at university, one of just two Indigenous students at the University of Queensland. I was enrolled in anthropology, and my lecturer, Romola McSwain, failed me and wrote on my essay that I couldn't have written it because I was Aboriginal and that I was cheating and somebody else must have written it. This was the time of an emerging Aboriginal civil rights movement in Queensland and also many anti-Vietnam War demonstrations. And so there was a great deal of police violence against students. And it was terrifying. They threatened to uh, kill me and my child, and that is one of the main reasons why I left Queensland. For the next five years, Marcia was gone, travelling around the world, learning about other struggles and her own back home. I went to Japan, I went to Hong Kong, I went to Taiwan, I went to Indonesia, I went on to the United States of America... I went back to Queensland and I went into a hotel to have a drink and I was told that I couldn't be served at the bar. And I thought, oh, here we go. I said, and why not? And the man said, because you're a woman and you have to go into the woman's lounge and the woman's lounge is over there. I thought, oh, really? (laughs) So I just left and, of course, one of the great words that I'd heard overseas and learnt for the first time was feminism. And I came back to Australia when feminism was just starting out in Australia. Australia's stifling colonial hangover, one that had lingered for seven decades since the country became independent, was finally starting to lift. By 1975, Marsha was enrolled at university, this time in Canberra, getting involved in the burgeoning black women's movement. This was a time of demonstrations and street marches and marginalised people joining together and raising their voices. This is not Baton Rouge, it's not Mississippi, and it's not Louisiana. It's a crisp, sparkling, sunny winter day in Canberra. There were no truncheons here, no police dogs and no electric cattle prods. But it was white Australian police against black Australian Aborigines. And a decades-old movement among Indigenous people started gathering steam with a demand that their ancestral land, stolen from them by the British, needed to be given back. And Marcia, newly graduated as an anthropologist, found herself in Central Australia, helping people to document their land claims. They began to understand, hang on, this is our country, 
and this white man owns it. Why don't we own it? Why don't we have title to it? So we were landless people in our own land. The legacy of how Australia was founded was everywhere. And within a few decades, Indigenous leaders would make the case to the country that there was a new way to tackle this legacy head-on and not just deal with its symptoms. But not yet. In the 1980s, Marcia got involved in the issue of why so many Indigenous people were dying in police custody. A mother of one of the boys who died in custody came to visit us in Alice Springs. Her son died in a lock-up in the Kimberley, and she didn't know why. Roban, population around 2,000, half black and half white, leapt into the headlines this month after a series of ugly riots between Aborigines and police. They were triggered by the death in police custody on September the 28th of 17-year-old John Pat. But he was not the only young Aboriginal man to die in police custody or in prison without any explanation. So I helped them to organise a meeting in Alice Springs where I was living and gave them contacts around Australia and they themselves started this movement for an inquiry. And eventually the Commonwealth set up the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Even just getting a Royal Commission, this whitest of institutions, taking Indigenous concerns seriously, was a huge achievement. Though its findings were, to many, disappointing. It investigated 99 deaths in custody and found none of them, zero, were due to police violence. Decades later, work by Guardian Australia and others has shown the rates of deaths in custody have, since that Royal Commission ended in 1991, only gone up. But it was that decade, the 1990s, that Marsha became involved in an issue that would capture the attention of the world. They belonged to a tribe whose custom formerly was to present their children in marriage to other tribes these innocent offspring of a Stone Age race. But all that is being changed. White missionaries have come among the coloured Aboriginals and are doing noble work in saving the blacks from themselves. Where once fear and superstition reigned, there's hope and a new purpose. The youngsters are beginning to live. From the early 20th century, Right up to 1967, it's estimated that at least 100,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were systematically and forcibly removed from their families by the state. These children were put into state homes, into church missions. Many never saw their families again. They came to be known as the Stolen Generations. So again, a very similar movement. Mothers began to campaign for an inquiry into the forced removal of their children, and indeed the children who'd been removed had grown up and they wanted to find their families and they started a movement for an inquiry into why they had been removed from their families. An inquiry was launched by the Australian Human Rights Commission and at the time, Marcia was based in the Northern Territory, documenting the testimonies of survivors and their families. There were terrible institutions in the Northern Territory Many children were signed out by the administrator of the Northern Territory from these institutions or directly from police custody to homesteads, to families where they were made domestic servants as children and even sent into a form of illegal adoption to white families down south. The inquiry culminated in 1997 with a pivotal report titled Bringing Them Home. It created deep shock. One of the 
key findings in Western Australia was that what happened there was actually an act of genocide. Quite technically, an act of genocide under the Genocide Convention because it was such an explicit, documented, systematic program to eliminate Aboriginal people by removing children from their families forcibly and enforcing segregation and marriage rules based on a caste system to ensure that the race, the race, did not survive. The children away, the children away, the children away, snatched from their mother's breast, and this is for the rest of them away. It took many years before there was an apology that was a key recommendation. For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. But just like with the deaths in custody, even after this historical issue was acknowledged, it didn't go away. It was still there, in another form, often worse than ever. There have never been any proper reparations to the victims. And there's never really been a commitment to prevent this from happening again. In fact, today, there are 23,000 Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. 23,000 children, and our population is less than 850,000. There are many more children in out-of-home care now. And the states are highly resistant to reforming their so-called child protection systems to stop the forced removal of children. Today we have newborn babies being removed from their hospital cribs by child protection agencies because they've classified their mothers who've just given birth as unfit mothers. Marcia kept working. In 1999, she travelled to London as part of a delegation of Aboriginal leaders to meet a woman whose family is, by some tellings, where the problem started. That meeting with Queen Elizabeth II was the first time a British monarch had granted an audience to an Indigenous Australian envoy since 1793. I'm not permitted by protocol to tell you about our conversations, but I can say this. When members of the royal family, including herself, visited Australia after our delegation, there was a very significant change that went unnoticed in Australia, and that was that she and members of her family met with the traditional owners of the country wherever they were and acknowledged them, and prior to this, that had never happened. The movement for Indigenous justice, equality and dignity in Australia is long and broad and flows through many different streams. Against poverty, unjust incarceration, for family unity, to name just a few. But in 2017, in the shadow of Uluru, the sacred rock in the heart of Australia, on the red soil of Majitlu country, a special meeting took place.
After years of discussions across the country, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders came together to discuss what they believed was a more fundamental way of dealing with all of these issues at once. We gathered here at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. The result was, I reckon, one of the most beautiful political documents ever produced in Australia. It's called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly, plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. The Uluru Statement from the Heart appeals to all Australians. It recognises Indigenous Australia. It recognises the British origins of our institutions and it recognises the multicultural Australians who similarly want to feel part of a nation that's based on an honourable settlement, drawing a line in the sand where all of us join in a future Australia that is based on inclusion, unity and decency, a sense of dignity. The statement calls for treaty-making between Indigenous Australians and others, and then truth-telling, a breaking of the silence that hangs like a blanket over so much of Australia's colonial history. The things that happened that people like me were never taught at school. But the first step is the voice, a body of Indigenous elders who offer non-binding advice on any government legislation that affects Indigenous people. Basically saying, if it's going to change our lives, it makes sense, practically and morally, that we always get a say. The voice would enshrine, in Australia's founding document, its constitution, a basic truth about the country, that Indigenous Australians were the first Australians. First of all, it's a fact that our ancestors came here over 60,000 years ago, and it's a fact that the history of this country does not begin in 1770 with Lieutenant James Cook planting the flag on Possession Island in the Torres Straits and annexing the eastern coast of Australia. And yet... Constitutionally, Australia does not recognise our existence. We also require constitutional recognition through the establishment of a voice in order to prevent us being treated as a political football. It is still the case that if a politician with nothing much else to say for themselves wants to draw attention to themselves, they run a racist campaign. Aborigines get too much. I'm going to get the Aborigines moved out of X, Y and Z Park. Using us as a political football is what is holding us back from closing the gap. So statistically, 
a very large proportion of our population are the poorest people in Australia, the sickest people. The average Aboriginal person will die 10 years younger than another Australian. Infant mortality rates are increasing. We are not closing the gap on most of our education targets, reducing incarceration targets, and so on. Over the last 50 years, they've established and then disestablished every one of our representative bodies. Nobody speaks to us or listens to us, and nor do they listen to our experts, nor do they want to solve the problems, and they make our lives so much worse. In May last year, a new government came to power in Australia. It was the Labor Party of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. And this past August, he formally announced the voice would be put to the people in a referendum. This is a modest request. I say to... I say to Australia, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Coming up, why this historic referendum tomorrow is on track to lose. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. I am shocked by how difficult it appears now to win the referendum. Coming into this year, it looked like a given that Australians would vote yes on The Voice. 
Polls showed some 60% of people in favour. Indigenous people have lived on the Australian continent for 60,000 years, but are not mentioned in its 122-year constitution. A poll by the Australian newspaper shows 56% of voters support the change in the constitution. But throughout this year, month by month, that number has collapsed. And now, on the eve of the referendum... The no case is firmly ahead. The Indigenous voice to Parliament is now only slightly more popular than Prince Harry. The poll shows only 39% of voters nationally say they will vote yes, while 61% are intending to vote no. Now, Marcia says the reason is politics. Referendums are hard to win, and Australia's two conservative opposition parties have been campaigning hard for no. The referendum won't decide how the voice will operate, just that it should exist. Parliament will decide what it actually looks like. And opponents have seized on this to warn voters, you just don't know what you're getting if you vote for the voice. Because it's risky, it's unknown, it's divisive and it's permanent. Many people, I think, have held off casting their vote because they thought the Prime Minister was going to give the detail of what it is they're being asked to vote on. But as it turns out, the detail is not coming. The other argument they make plays on people's confusion about this whole process, because it can be complicated. And they're urging voters, if you don't get it, don't even bother trying to find out. The slogan of the No campaign, led by Peter Dutton, is if you don't know, vote no. And all you have to do is Google it. All you have to do is Google it. And there are other criticisms. Around 80% of Indigenous people are thought to be in favour of the voice, but a small number are not, and they're getting a lot of attention. People like the Conservative Indigenous Senator Jacinta Price. What would be racist is segmenting our nation into us and them. And you have to say, it would also be stupidity to divide a nation when it has been growing ever more cohesive. To split it along fractures of race rather than try to bring it closer together. We are not introducing race into the Constitution. Our Constitution has been racist since it was drafted by the founders. And we are trying to mitigate the racism by asking for a mere advisory body to advise or make representations to the parliament and executive government so that their decisions are not racist. On the other side are people on the left, including another Indigenous senator, Lydia Thorpe, who say the voice is a cop-out, doesn't go far enough. It's part of a colonial system that will continue to oppress us. It has no power. It will be controlled by the parliament. So we are here to say that we don't accept that, That is not good enough. Sadly, a process that was meant to bring the country together, turn a new page in Australia's history, has gotten pretty ugly in a pretty familiar way. All of us are getting death threats. One of my colleagues at work at the University of Melbourne was verbally assaulted outside our offices yesterday. I'm subject to one security report at the University of Melbourne. One agency's reported a 108% escalation in racial attacks. Using racism as the old trick is just the lowest of the low. And they will not be forgiven for poisoning the well. How would you 
understand and know vote in light of this history that we've been discussing? Because it's one of progress. It's one of steady enlightenment and I guess a kind of growing understanding of the complexity of the indigenous peoples and a growing respect for their rights. And then what would a no vote mean for that story? Well, I, the failure of our proposal to succeed at the referendum will tell me, and I've thought deeply about this, that actually for all of our hard work, we failed to convince the majority of Australians that we are not an inferior race. And I would say that what it means primarily is the death of reconciliation. And that will be a great tragedy. But that is where Australia will be if the majority vote no. How does that prospect leave you feeling about the country that you've sought and fought for so many decades to change? Well, of course, I will be disappointed. But when I look at my many years of work, I know that in my heart of hearts, we have only ever been able to convince a minority of Australians about our essential humanity and entitlement to equal rights. To what extent do you think British people should feel connected to this story that you've been telling us today? I was very surprised when I went to Britain, when we went to see the Queen. We spoke to many people. We had many formal meetings. And you know that almost nobody that we spoke to had any understanding of the British history of colonisation in Australia, nor any sense of responsibility for it. Even though British colonisation resulted in the deaths of possibly two million Indigenous Australians through warfare, massacres, disease, and the complete and utter dispossession of our people. No comprehension of it at all. I want people around the world to understand, should this referendum fail, that we made a very generous offer to the Australian people for them to join us in creating an Australia where we feel included and have a place of dignity and a small say in matters that affect us. Finally, if you could go back now to the young Marsha Langton up in a tree, reading a book, living in the Queensland of the 1950s, what would you tell her? Don't waste your time trying to change Australia. That's been your life's work. And, uh, and many other people too. Professor Marsha Langton, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. That was Professor Marcia Langton. The referendum on The Voice is tomorrow and it'll be covered live by Guardian Australia with news and analysis to follow on Sunday. 
If you're interested in learning more about this part of Australia's history, check out the work of Lorena Allum, Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs Editor, especially the projects she's overseen called Deaths Inside, about Indigenous deaths in custody, and also The Killing Times, which reveals the extent of the violence that accompanied colonisation in Australia. Thank you so much to her for her guidance, as well as to Lisa DeVisi for production help, and to Miles Martignoni for all his support. For more Australian news, check out Full Story, Guardian Australia's daily news podcast, available wherever you listen to today in focus and that is it for today this episode was produced by courtney yusuf sound design was by solomon king the executive producer was homa khalili and we'll be back with you on monday this is the guardian Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.